listening to another episode of the Niagara Moon podcast. I'm Thomas Irwin. Uh, this is a really interesting episode, I think. Lots of uh, unusual lore to dig into behind this album. And joining me once again, I think for the, the third time, is Thin Lear, uh, a wonderful Baroque pop songwriter down in Queens, New York. He has a new album as of last year called Wooden Cave. I mentioned it before, but uh, such a solid, lovely, beautifully produced uh, selection of tunes there. If you want to ever check that out on Bandcamp or Spotify, uh, his album Wooden Cave is, is definitely one of my uh, big recent recommends. Apparently there's still some vinyl available under his uh, record label as well, Egg Hunt Records. So uh, yeah, Thin Lear, a.k.a. Matt, he's joining me in discussing the one and only 1968 album Odyssey and Oracle by the Zombies. Let's go. This, this record is, was such a welcome diversion from, I guess, all of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. It's just, it. we've done, I've done a few of these now. You obviously do this all the time, but, um, you know, in, in the airplane, when we did that one, it was quite serious for me for some reason. I just like, I, I, I felt very responsible for like representing my feelings on that record. Not to say that Odyssey and Oracle is not important to me, but it's just so... It was almost difficult to analyze the music because I just enjoyed it so much. You know, not to say I didn't enjoy, you know, Death of a Ladies Man or In the Airplane, but like there, there, there's more challenging stuff happening on those records. This is just like a blast of 35 minutes of just masterful pop perfection. Uh, and it, it's almost hard to break it down because of how concise and, and complete it is. It's like it's like if robots, if 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 like psych pop robots made it made a perfect album, it, it, it sort of feels like that. <laughs> it does have the same effect as a as a good Beatles album, just mm-hmm. timeless. Every song hits, uh, just breezy, sunny, laid back, colorful. Like nothing about this is uh, well. There's the song about uh, being on the front lines in World War One, but besides that, it's sure. it's so casual. It makes uh, masterful Baroque pop, chamber pop, whatever you want to call it. It makes masterful '60s pop look easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it makes it sound easy. And um, I mean, it was recorded in the Summer of Love, right, 1967, which I think was one of the things that maybe doomed it. Uh, I have I have a lot to say about why I think it didn't succeed uh, at, at the time of release. Yeah. Uh, I have, like, I have a lot of thoughts about that. But I guess before we go into the record, yeah. do you want to talk about, I guess, how you discovered it? I mean, for me, I, I distinctly remember getting into the record, like, at the start of college. It was, like, end of summer. It, it, it's perfect for... Uh, like an eye-opening life transition. Uh, and, I, and I find that I come back to this record at transitional moments in my life when I need like some kind of um, soothing 
kind of thing, like a comfort uh, uh, sound. But but when positive things are happening, uh, it's like a blossoming kind of record. When I got married, um, and, and I'm sure there are a ton of couples have, who have used this song, we, we used uh, This Will Be Our Year uh, after, after the vows. I had this uh, an, an, um, quartet play and they've often worked with me on on some of my uh, albums and we had them play the, the sheet music oh of God. that song and and i remember when i was already obviously very emotional on that day and, and when that song came on like it's just i felt my chest fill up with all this emotion uh because i started thinking about the course of my life and how i ended up here and i remember when i first heard the song as like a teenager I think similar to Pet Sounds and, and some of the the more hopeful songs on that record, you kind of have to imagine what life is going to be like and to have those feelings with a partner that you that you care for in that way. Uh, and it's nice to, to think about. And I, I think it, in that moment, I realized that I had actually achieved it. Uh, and I can't think of too many songs that would have struck me uh, uh, in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just one beautiful song of many. Um, and I know that's the one, this will be our year that gets a lot of, uh, placements on TV shows, like the end of, of series and seasons like Schitt's Creek and some others, uh, oh, yeah. to, had a, a second life. I mean, it's just, it, it hits that mark so well. And it's, I mean, yeah, there's so many different ways to come at this album. Um, so I think you asked me how I initially got into it and, um, I had a definitely, uh, a lot of downtime and a lot of boredom in middle school. And I had access to the entire Western Massachusetts regional library system. Uh, and I had iTunes and I had, I had the <laughs> privilege to just, you know, like rent out 20 CDs a week, rip them all into my computer and just like create this massive, like free music library for myself. That was my, uh, obsession back then and def odyssey and oracle and the zombies definitely were kind of in the, the maelstrom of that so i i kind of was introduced to this album and, and digested it at the same time as so many other kind of classics or maybe lesser known classics from the 60s and 70s and so it was i didn't re it didn't really sink in then when i first got familiar with the songs um, as it has when I periodically go back to it later on in my life. Um, I got the opportunity to just hang out and visit friends and, and uh, sightsee in San Francisco years ago. And I listened to this album, uh, Strolling Through Golden Gate Park. And that oh, was, you, oh uh, you gotta. Yeah, you yeah gotta. that was it right there. Uh, and then listening, of, listening to it for uh, this podcast and talking about it today, it's just like, it's yeah, effortlessly joyful and um, the and the weight of the songs and really the the like harmonic sophistication because there's a lot of like classical and church music uh, mm -hmm. influence going on in here and you know it's a very keyboard based band. Um, just really appreciating that sophistication, especially given how young everybody involved was making <laughs> this. What twenty one, twenty two. Everybody's it's born in freaking 1945. It's infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, we was like, you know, 19 or whatever. When they wrote, um, she's not there. Yeah. Like, you know, so Rod Argent was like a, a teenager. Yeah. That, yeah. that was actually, she's not there, I think, is a great uh, precursor to this album. 
because mm. uh, it, it has the jazz tinge, dramatic, haunting so. vocals. It's it's propulsive though, and yeah. it's surprising. Uh, and and I heard, I mean, I, I obviously knew about the zombies before I heard Odyssey and Oracle. And I had heard them from oldies radio, just riding around my parents' car as a kid, hearing uh, She's Not There in Time of the Season. And there were songs that always kind of like scared me a little bit. Mm. I think maybe because the band was called The Zombies and they had a singer who sounded like he was a ghost. <laughs> uh, yeah. But very those wispy. songs are like, they're, they're very dramatic and, and, um, and, and haunting. And uh, I, when I was a teenager, I bought the, uh, compilations from two bands, uh, The Kinks and The Zombies. Mm. And the, to me, those were probably still are like the coolest bands of that era. They both had just really distinct uh, uh, voices. But yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until Odyssey and Oracle hearing that that I really like, I would say, became a, a, a huge fan. Yeah, I mean, so she's not there. I, I heard that came up on Spotify after I listened to Odyssey and Oracle. I'm like, oh, that was the zombies? Like that song was floating around my subconscious. And I was like, this is the most 60s sounding song I think I've ever heard. Like if I had to make Austin Powers 4, this would be the opening <laughs> music. Like it's, it's almost a cliche of itself. Like you, you can do this kind of song once and then anytime it's, I don't know, really like just seemed to sum up that whole mid 60s era of uh, what was going on at that time, what different like influences were coming into, into pop music. But uh, yeah, Odyssey and Oracle, that I, it was kind of in my mind, it was like, the album itself stuck out to me and lured me in more than the idea of this band, the zombies. It was maybe, you know, I'd be combing through websites, probably like Rolling Stone or, uh, you know, I'm always, I was always looking for new music to check out and like classic albums. Like I was very album oriented and Odyssey and Oracle with that awesome psychedelic cover, you know, those, those vivid colors. It was like, Oh, that, that, that's obvious. That seems like the one to get into next. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even think, and I heard the album and and loved the songs without really knowing what the band had done before or since. Like I just kind of, because it start to finish, I mean, it's it's uncanny in its resemblance to Sgt. Pepper's in a lot of ways. It's recorded right after, basically, they're supposedly they're using John Lennon's Mellotron. Uh, yeah. They got Jeff Emmerich engineering, which is probably the biggest reason that uh, the, the two albums can sound similar, but... You know, and that's one of my favorite albums of all time, of course, Sgt. Sure. Pepper's. So I was like, oh, this is like a bonus Sgt. Pepper's. So I really, yeah. that was like it for me early on. And then it's, yeah, now I'm just thinking about all the guys involved and you have Colin Blundstone's solo career. And yeah, there's, again, there's a lot to, to chew on here. So that, I guess we could approach it. Um, let's start with like the recording process itself. Uh, I mean, it sounds stressful uh, and like you you kind of you hear it in the urgency uh, of the playing and the singing uh like these these dudes were watching their careers disintegrate as they were as they were writing and making the album um apparently before they started making it they d- did a tour of the philippines that sounds like it probably went as badly as a tour can go like they were playing like thirty thousand seat arenas packed houses every night and yet they were making like uh, a really paltry amount of money because it was just the wild west of the music industry. Yeah. So they, 
they would have these hits in other countries and just not even know that they were hits. And yeah. you'll you see it later when they had a hit with time of the season in the U.S. and and the band was already broken up and they it took them a while to figure out that that was happening. Which you know today is it's like mind boggling to think that would happen. Right. Different but era. They, <laughs> right. And they were doing like it was a, a hail mary this record for them. Uh, I think their manager had already left them. They somehow got this record deal. Uh, it was a thousand pounds, which I did the. That was their uh, budget. So I did the math and adjusted for inflation. Unless I'm very wrong, it's like like twenty k in U.S. dollars. Uh, wow. adjust, adjusted for inflation, which is really small budget considering considering how it sounds. Yeah, how, how it sounds, and the fact that it's recorded at Abbey Road, which I'm sure was not cheap. Because it was the biggest and best studio in the world at that time, uh, so it's just uh, amazing. And the fact that they had to record in like three-hour chunks because of the weird union stuff that was happening at the studio, they needed to have like a lunch break. Wow. Uh, and I just imagine it was not conducive to uh, creativity. You'd never know by listening to it. It's so relaxed for the most part. Beechwood Park. That tune, it does not sound, it does not sound like no. everybody's uh, stressed out. It's, it's, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm both really impressed by the band's ability sonically to not let that come through. Like it just, it sounds like they had all the time and the money in the world to my ears. Like it's, it sounds like a perfectly realized musical vision. Uh, but then I'm also like, why did they disintegrate so quickly after they couldn't have hung around just another couple of years? It's like making a bad investment decision. Like, guys, just hold. Like, you're going to blow up a little more time. This album is amazing. Just, uh, I was, they, they couldn't hold on, I guess. Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot. Um, you know, like, obviously, the fact that it stands tall alongside like Sgt. Pepper's and Pet Sounds just shows the level of Completely. talent in the band. You obviously wonder where they would have gone. But then I was thinking like maybe this was just the record they needed to make. Uh, I, I remember – you remember that band Waves, like W-A-V-V-E-S? I've never had, heard their stuff, but th they were like uh, kind of distorted, fuzzy, yeah. like surf rock, indie surf exactly. rock kind of thing. That's, that's, yeah. That sums it up. And I, I'm not like a huge fan uh, or anything. I, I do enjoy that record. Um, but anyway, I remember there was a reviewer at the time who was talking about how the band essentially existed to make that one record. And, mm. and I, when I read it, I, I read it like an insult. But now, you know, after many years of, of realizing that um, it's maybe better to have a masterpiece than it is to have a bunch of good records, uh Maybe it's not an insult. And I think, you know, so, some groups or artists, maybe they have that one masterful work in them. And it's probably better legacy-wise than releasing like a string of, of, of decent records. And similar to In the Airplane, uh, maybe this record wouldn't be looked upon as fondly if they released like a bunch of okay albums in its wake. Mm. See, I, I would be all in with you on that, except then you look at the first two Colin Blundstone solo albums. Sure. Which yeah. are uh, Argent and White, two central figures of the zombies, were involved in and produced. And I'm like, why don't you guys just call yourselves the zombies? Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. And, and even the, yeah. the songs that they, they had, um, they weren't necessarily cutting room floor songs, but like the, the Imagine the Swan or whatever, when they, they recorded a few other songs 
in in the aftermath, and they sound really good. Like Imagine yeah. Swan, aside from the really stupid title, is a great it's a great song that could fit alongside any of these any of these tracks. So um, yeah, I mean, I think they probably would have made more amazing music at this level, but. Uh, going back to that recording process, you, you brought up the, the ghost of the Beatles. Mm. Uh, and there is no better, you, you said they, they were using Lennon's Mellotron. Is there a better like metaphor for the creation of this album? Like working in the Beatles old studio on borrowed time using the Beatles old mm. equipment. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a bastard version of Sgt. Pepper or something like that, but it, it, it holds its own. And I think then in, in the, when you're talking about why maybe it didn't succeed, I think that's one of the reasons it might not have succeeded is because it is a very different album than Pet Sounds or Sgt. Pepper's in that it, it's not super flowery. It's um, not out there. That Yeah, no. that was another thing I thought of was it has the general kind of tone and sonics of something like Sgt. Pepper's, but Sgt. Pepper's goes all over the map and each song is like a different world. And this is like a very modest, consistent, like cohesive version of that. Like each song sounds like it's in the same world, in the same room, on the same day, but just still really lovely song to song. But it's it doesn't go all over the place. It just stays in one lane for the whole duration, which is kind of impressive in and of itself. Um, but it, yeah, it's like kind of way more stripped back in a way than, than those other albums. 100%. And, and, and like lyrically, um, you know, I don't think – every time they do have some sort of uh, flower child type uh, um, sentiment, it's always paired with something else that maybe darkens it or makes it seem hard-earned. Like even with um, – Heavy-hearted. Time- Right. Like time, yeah. it, it, this will be our year. Like there's a sadness to that song. It's like, well, they, they went through something. Uh, that made them feel this way. That it's 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 a uh, an optimism that is not um, unearned. Uh, and then a, a song like "Time of the Season," like yeah, the chorus is like very lovey dovey. But then you look at the verses where it's it's almost like uh, very flippant and obnoxious. Where he's like, "How much money does your dad make? Uh, you know, is 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 he rich like me?" It, it, it's it's very much not like a, a hippy dippy kind of vibe. It's like some dude trying to. Uh, talk a girl into into going out with him or something. It's uh, str- a strange, strange vibe in that song. Yeah, these guys, none of these guys strike me as acid heads so far from what no. I've dug into. No. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, again, getting back to how surprising it is they're so young, like there is an old soul quality to even just the arrangement. Again, I'm I'm coming back to like Beechwood Park. It's so... It's really mellow. It you know it it's it's it has dynamics and um, you know they have these expansive choruses and harmonies, but it really it stays at a pretty low amount of intensity. I mean, in a way that I still love, but just it's it's not. Um, I don't know what this album would sound like live in terms of. I mean, it would be awesome and it would sound wonderful, but in terms of like getting the audience, how excited would you get the audience with these kind of songs? Yeah, that's a really uh, good question. For excited in like a, the way of a wedding, not like a, a party, maybe. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's, um, that's a really good point. I mean, they, they did, 
they regrouped to kind of capitalize on some of the some of the success, which I mean is fantastic for them that most of the members were alive when when they had this like second yeah. wave, right? I guess or I guess first wave. Um, so that's fantastic. But uh, you know, you brought up the fact that Beachwood Park, I think, is a great example of the level of production on this album. The fact that Spotify can go ahead and make like a psychedelia playlist today and put Tame Impala right next to Beachwood Park is a testament to the, the level of mixing and, and, and production. And, and I would argue, this might be a hot take, but I would argue that you know, a band like Tame Impala uh, maybe wouldn't sound the way they do without the existence of this record. I think, and this is another hot take, that this album uh, is, is, more, uh, is owned more by future generations than it is by the boomers. Yeah, I think that if you if you talk to a boomer, they would be able to tell you time of the season. They know that song. They know she's not there. They might know like friends of mine or this will be our year, like some of the pseudo hits or whatever. But they're not going to be able to go into album tracks because this wasn't a hit for that generation. It was a hit for like our generation and uh, maybe a few generations before before us. Uh, I think that those those were the groups who who really discovered it and folded it into their songwriting. Hmm. I do think you could definitely argue, in terms of uh, different generations, like the the cult around the really the musical meat of the album, like what they're doing and its place in popular music history and kind of the innovations and just its its status as a quality piece of musical expression. You could probably say there, there's more people our age nerding out over that than 70-year-olds. Um, but it's, it's – so I don't know how many bands you have like that because at the same time they can come back 40, 50 years later and they're doing the cruises with the Moody Blues. Like they're cashing in on their appeal with you know the, the people that were of age when that album came out. That's, that's what's maybe sustained them and kept them whole as a band. But – it it took the generation or two after that maybe to to really single this album out as as the uh, you know the masterpiece it is. To, but to that's them, also yeah. that's a hot take slash just total random guess. So be curious what you're. Oh no no this is com- yeah completely it's it's all random. But I, I yeah I mean I think th- I would argue that they maybe would have had some success anyway with the cruise ship crowd. Um, I, I think they're. The, the critical darling thing, though, I think that yeah. comes from the later generations yeah. because yeah, I that's think, what you're saying. you know, the, the older folks might just say that, you know, they were maybe a singles band or something like that. You look at them like they were the Turtles or, 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 uh, or something like that as opposed yeah, another to one of the, the, the animals, the somethings. Right. Yeah. Get lumped right. in that crowd. Yeah, I, exactly. Um, going back to that time. Uh, so some albums from 68 that were released around that time. You got Beggar's Banquet, uh, Music from Big Pink, uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, The White Album, uh, Lady Soul, Electric Ladyland. John Wesley uh, Harding. John Wesley Harding. I mean, it was probably difficult to make any headway there with that playing field, especially because it had been a while since any of their singles had like uh, done, done well. Um, it also again, sounded I, like they did not have excellent management, and I don't think any of them also, if I'm just judging by their general demeanor, none of them were 
maybe good at, you know, getting attention or being in the public eye. Like they're just okay. Like they're not, there's no Tom Jones in here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Cause even Colin himself is, seems like sort of a reluctant front. He seems pretty introverted. Yeah. Yeah. His voice is like uh, next level. I mean, we were, we were emailing about that. It's probably the first thing you notice about, um, their music. I mean, it's a stupid thing to say. It's the first thing you notice about probably any pop song, but I mean, his vocals in particular are just like otherworldly. Uh, and I think even as a, even as an eight year old, you can recognize that, that there's something very weird going on here with this like sighing, uh, voice. It sounds like he's like a spirit hovering over the, over the music. Very breathy. Mm-hmm. But really has a range too. He can go really low and get in close, and then he he can hit the the high notes. Yeah, the zombies. It's it's this beautiful production, just immaculate taste. And you got Jeff Emmerich engineering and the freaking, you know, the whole Sergeant Pepper setup. You got this songwriting team, Argent and White, Rod Argent and Chris White, just both of them nailing it and. It's not like an Argent song sounds so much different than a White song and there's this push and pull. It's like each of these songs, I, I couldn't just guess offhand who wrote what. And like they're just a a solid songwriting team. And then you got Colin at the helm with his, his very, very distinctive voice. And um, if they could make One Year and Ennis Moore, I don't know why they didn't just keep the, you know, keep the momentum going after... Uh, after Odyssey and Oracle, you know, even if it was a few years later, that that part still, I'm going to be uh, befuddled by that this whole time. But it's su- it's such a weird thing because, like, I don't know how many records you could say that classic records that by the time the album came out that they were already no longer a band. You know, they were they were done before release day, uh, and then when Time of the Season actually did pick up some steam in the U.S. Uh, they, they did get it, uh, released in the U S because, uh, uh, Al Cooper, uh, mm. you know, that, uh, a guy who really has championed an unsung champion of a lot of bands and he seems like a genuinely good dude. Uh, he, and he plays the organ on like a Rolling Stone. He, he does. And he, it's it, that, that story is hilarious that uh, he just like inserted himself into the session and you, you hear it on the outtakes. Uh, I forget what his name is. The producer, uh, Tom, Tom Wilson. Tom must maybe yeah something like that something like that Google to the rescue Tom Wilson got it Tom Wilson very nice so he 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 says like what are you doing in there like where how'd you get in there uh so he's he's just like a just a a really cool uh really cool dude and he um he's a very mischievous looking guy Al Cooper with his (laughs) pointy sunglasses yeah yes yeah he looks like a counterfeit Dylan uh, but he he championed he championed the record and and got Clive Davis to release it and then they what they do they released Butcher's Tale as the single, which is an insane idea. I mean I enjoy the song and it's like wacky, uh, but what would make them think that that is going to be a, a chart topping song? It's the kind of song you only digest once you're fully in the album. It's like oh and this song is in here too. It's still good, but I think it's also my least favorite song in this album. Like, it's just, it takes me out of this dreamlike, summer gone by, heavy hearted, melancholic love. It takes me out of that zone to, to you know, my 
my mind won't stop shaking. That lyric falls flat for me a little bit. But you're just talking about post-traumatic stress disorder from war. I'm like, yeah, that was, I don't know why they made that a single. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit odd. And then you, you, they're talking about like World War One. PTSD. Yeah, like, for the you know, the British, the British experience. Oh yeah, Americans are really gonna are really gonna get that. <laughs> and then right after that, they have friends of mine, which is like that's a great one, so, a great a great song, and, and but such an optimistic. Like, let me talk about these couples after you've heard about World War One soldiers. It's, it's a really odd uh, sequencing, uh, but definitely you wouldn't go to that one as as a, as a single. Yeah. What 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 A and R person. It listens to this record and doesn't pick "Time of the Season" as the lead single. Like, what? How did you not hear that? I mean, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but it just—it yeah, yeah. seems like it just screams out as as uh, as the centerpiece of the record, right? It really, yeah, because it's it's really catchy and it, and it's a perfect introduction to the band. Even if again, it's not like one of my favorite songs by theirs, but you just. It's all in there with the organ and the the really kind of bizarre tonal shifts that work. It's, it's really musically sophisticated, and you got all that uh, all that vocal harmony that comes together in, in a really clever way and really easy to remember. A hook. It's got it's the whole thing. Yeah, that's where you would come in to this band from, and then you're rewarded with uh, the, the whole rest of the riches here. Because it, it's it's not an album of singles Mm-mm. besides that song, really. Even all these songs are really strong, but it's a, out of a context or just like if you heard it is, isolated by itself on the radio. Yeah, it doesn't pull you in like Time of the Season, so big miss there. Um, I, so I, another thing I, w- I was thinking about, about why maybe it didn't uh, succeed uh, – the, the cover art. So I know, I know it's, it's great. misspelled accidentally. It is, Odyssey. So it is misspelled, and that's like such a like uh, like hippie like burnout kind of thing. Like oh, I, I did the cover art, but I maybe misspelled it. Uh, I, I do enjoy it. Like it's very cool looking. Looks like but, a Scooby Doo backdrop to me <laughs> somehow. A little bit, yeah. But I, I don't think it necessarily reflects the full range of emotions that are elicited by this record like it's it's gorgeous but it, this is not a cut and dried psychedelic record and the cover just places it squarely there and then it gets mm. coupled with those other 67 releases um, <laughs> but it's, it's much darker than than a lot of those records and it also it 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 this feeds into this other thing of well what genre is this i think people cleanly categorize it as psychedelia but you haven't said that word yet and i agree (laughs) with you you keep saying baroque pop and chamber pop and yes it is those things that that's more where i would put it but the cover art doesn't uh doesn't place it there and i think because it's it's made in the fumes of sergeant peppers and made around the time of pet sounds and was obviously influenced by that you know in terms of the harmonies and arrangements and stuff like that but th- these are not tripped out songs they're really direct yeah. narratives with with characters and, and clear structure they're, really they're not grounded. asking you n- at no point do they say relax and float downstream like there's, there's not that's not happening here yeah yeah i because sonically it, it has some of those 60s psych tropes but yeah now that you mention it lyrically the whole time i don't think there's anything 
that's telling me to to tune in, turn off, drop out, whatever the like. There, it, it does not have that bent to it at all. Um, also, by the way, if you want to see the most inappropriately psychedelic album cover of all time, uh, "Blowing Your Mind" by Van Morrison. It's one of the, <laughs> you know, know it. Is it the, it's the one where you're, it's like a weird like uh, like he has his head in the middle. Yeah, it's a terrible like a, angle. It's just his sweaty face and just like <laughs> like chin first, and then just this uh, looks like a cream album cover. Just flowery designs around. Oh, it's yeah, it's such a, a mismatch. It's a great album though. Sure. Um, so there's this whole other thing. I guess we'll we'll get to the imposter zombies later. <laughs> I was just reading about that. Yeah. Good lord. I mean, it, it, obviously it was the wild west back then, but can you imagine anything like that being possible today? Uh, we just have different, it's the same, uh, take. It's this, it's the same desire to just bamboozle, but you you do it with bots and with algorithms and with digital this or that. It, it wouldn't be imposters showing up <laughs> to a live show saying they're the zombies. So for the, so for the listeners, uh, they, so the, the record did start to see some success. And like we were saying at that point, the band was no longer a band. So then you had this promoter. So I forget the name of the promoter. I think it was called Delta Promotions. Yeah. Uh, and they were ran, uh, they were run somewhere near Michigan. Uh, and they concocted this idea to have put together these, these fake, uh, fake zombies groups. There were multiple groups. Um, one of the members of one of the fake zombies bands was told that, that the zombies didn't actually exist as a band, that they were a studio concoction. Um, and even crazier, two of the future members of ZZ Top, two of the three yeah. future members of ZZ Top were part of one of the main fake zombies bands. And they sort of refused to acknowledge that they did this now. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe they're worried about getting yeah. sued. I mean, it seems like they could probably talk about it at this point, but uh, it's it's unbelievable. That was before they had beards. They don't talk about the time before they had, they had <laughs> the beards. The time before beards. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's funny, you know, because there's just the experience of consuming these albums and, oh, weren't the 60s great, all this wonderful music. <laughs> and then you dig into the lore and what really happened with some of the stuff, and it's like, oh, boy. The Wild <laughs> West. Fake, Wild West. One of those fake bands didn't even have a keyboardist. So I imagine it was probably hard to approximate the zombie They even play song. zombie songs? <laughs> I think one, the, the, one for, the band from Texas with the guys from ZZ Top, I, it sounds like from what I was reading that they were just doing their own thing, like that they would maybe play a cover or two, right. uh, obviously, and, and then they just do a bunch of blues music. Right. The um, name gets you in the door, and then once you're there, it's like, who cares? <laughs> oh, we'll see the zombies. I heard them on the right. radio. That's it. End of story. Wow, and then there was another band from Michigan, uh, another fake zombies, st- same promotion company, and this version of the band was apparently much better, and they actually did play zombie songs, and they and they approximated the sound. So uh, that one, they they did a larger tour, I think, because they were less worried about getting getting called out. <laughs> wow, getting back to so, Colin Blundstone. I'm thinking about his solo career again, and it came really 
fairly quickly after uh, the zombies folded. Um, one year and Annis Moore, both amazing albums, especially Annis Moore, I think is is my favorite. And, and it's the closest you get to like a quality zombies album that never was, I feel like. It's kind of the spiritual successor. Colin is somebody, I think he might have been the most regretful about the zombies breaking up at the time. I feel like if, if there was anybody that wanted to just hold out and, and you know, wait, wait for potential opportunity, I think it was him. And there's, uh, I saw some interview with him, you know, within the last few years and they kind of, it's it's all them together and, and Colin sort of ends the interview by lamenting like you know it is interesting to think what we might have been able to do if if we'd stayed together like I you know I think I I am really curious behind the scenes why they didn't keep the name and, and keep that that arrangement of people and why he just ended up having to do a solo career because I feel like him as a solo artist and just kind of the the aesthetic of that and his image it's uh, i feel like he he needed to be part of a group still hmm. um i don't know what your thoughts on that are i think i mean you you've been part of a lot of bands and and we know that thing that happens when a band um disintegrates where i don't know if you've found this but like even with the best of friends that I've been in with, with the bands, there's been a period where we don't talk to each other after a band falls apart, especially after you do that Hail Mary thing. Uh, I think because they were looking at this record like this is going to save us. Uh, and then it didn't. But they didn't even let it let it save them, which makes me think that they had just they poured their souls into it. And they were like, oh, I need to, I need to breathe from this. Uh, and I think especially yeah. Rod, Ar- Rod Argent needed to breathe from it. It seemed like more than anyone, and he was, th- in, according to them, it's it, the driving creative force behind uh, a lot of it. So I, I think they just needed to sort of like shake off the the, the vibe of, of how stressful making that record was, and say like, all right, we we did that hail mary, it's time to move on. Um, Mm. You hear that that story of them screaming at each other in the studio recording the vocals of Time of the Season with Colin Blundstone looking up at the the time ticking down on the studio clock. Uh, It just sounds like a nightmare. So I I think after that kind of experience, you're like, why would I want to how can I be creative in this in this kind of environment? Um, But it did feel like out of all of them, even though Argent was a successful band, it did feel like in the immediate aftermath of the record that Colin had the most left in the tank for, mm. for the group. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can totally believe. And also I've, I've heard at least one of them say like they, they made this album not really thinking or expecting uh, it was going to be heard by many people. Like it was, it was very much like, well, we have this kind of last ditch opportunity to just do our own thing and, and make this music we want to make. And, that's it. Like we're not, or they, maybe they they changed their story and this is what they're saying now. But it was kind of like, you know, it's just it is what it is. We'll we'll have fun doing this and that's it, kind of thing. And I they yeah they probably, ah, and they were all still so damn young. They could yeah they I I get why they at least some of them felt like they needed to step away and try out something new. But yeah, again, I don't know why you don't get back in the saddle. Or again, I can't believe White and Argent both were producing multiple Colin Blundstone albums. 
like they were getting along well enough to to be to be doing yeah. that together and then yeah i don't know it's an interesting also, situation to me they might not have even believed the level of success that they were starting to see because of how uh difficult it was to receive information in a timely <laughs> manner like when time of the season started blowing up that was i guess a full year or more after they had already broken up it was in 69 so at that point they were probably like what <laughs> you know like what you know like, that that can't be real the the story of time of the season hitting with radio really emphasizes the randomness of success mm. because there was only one station in Boise, Idaho, that picked it up after a long time, after after a, you know years since it had come out in in, in the UK in, in early '68. It was '69 when it hit in that in this one radio station, and then gradually other stations you know started to trickle in, and it became you know a success. But if that one disc jockey in Boise goes, oh, I don't like this cover, does this ever happen? Are we even talking about this <sighs> record now? This concept of cream always rises to the top is, is just a false narrative. And I think the industry and artists, you know, tell ourselves that to get comfortable with the fact that there's seemingly very little rhyme or reason to any of this. Yeah, it is a very interesting question. Like, would this music, because this, again, this album is so undeniably solid and it does resonate with, with generations of music fans. But I don't know, I'm still inclined to think it would have its, like, we would still know about it, you and I being music nerds and, and always looking for the, the overlooked gems. I think I think it would still have a following. Uh, obviously not as much, but, like, you know, Nick Drake eventually got picked up for Subaru commercials or whatever it was. I, I uh, And they were all active still in the music industry, and, and Chris White, I guess, went on to become an A&R agent, and... I gotta believe some, something would have clicked, but you know maybe they wouldn't be doing uh, the the Moody Blues cruise. <laughs> yeah, but they, yeah, and touring yeah, yeah. as much as they're able to tour in the 21st century. I mean, that's that's pretty. I'll get I'll tip my hat to to them for that. Like they're they they've been busy, even if they're still kind of stu- stuck in doing all these much older songs. But um, and they, they and tried a lot to... of bands from the 60s don't get to do that. Right, yeah, and they and they tried to record, uh, or they did record new music. Um, I haven't yeah. listened a lot to it. I kind of, um, I, I don't I, want to. <laughs> I don't want to know. Sure. Um, going back to uh, this record being a last gasp, and like, and why they maybe didn't re- record again in in the aftermath of it. Um, it, it when you there's a, there's a really cool like it's in, for some reason it's on, people people magazine has this article like in their online archives where it's this oral history of the, the making of the record which is like maybe the coolest thing on the people magazine mm. website uh there you get the sense that there was not the usual excitement of let's make an album as they were going into the studio it was like we're dying our lives are spiraling <laughs> We need to make this album. And I think that level of pressure, especially when you've already seen the heights of success that they saw with like, she's not there and tell her right, no. Right, at stuff. 18 years old. Yeah. Right. That pressure can can crush. And I think it did ultimately, but it also can generate a lot of beauty. And I think it did both. Like it allowed them to generate this beauty and it also crushed them at, at yeah. the same time. Yeah, I can see that. 
<sighs> which hopefully doesn't take away from the sheer joy right, uh, that right. you can experience yeah. listening to this this album. It's very much not a downer. Right, and and it's later on in their lives. I mean, this album in particular, it's kind of the whole reason or a big part of the reason they can all stay active in music. Um, you know, Colin Blundstone had to be had to work in insurance shortly after this, but not forever. Like, you know, he eventually could, could gig and, and live out, uh, you know, his musical dreams. But, uh, yeah, I don't, they probably did not want to hear these songs played back for a while after this thing was completed. There were probably some, <sighs> yeah, it's, it, have you heard Argent's band? Like what he, I haven't really dug into what he did after a little bit. I mean, I can't. I'm definitely not uh, any kind of authority on on it. I I, I know. I, I tried listening to it a couple times. I I, I dug uh, one of the albums. It, it it sounded a little more proggy. Yeah. Uh, does it have like the Utopia Todd Rundgren band effects? Like, I guess. Yeah. I guess it goes in that direction. I mean, I think you can trace this record to Prague uh, just as easily as you could trace it to psychedelic music. I mean, I think you um, there's some virtuoso playing and definitely the, these lyrics you know flies on dead corpses and uh butcher's tale like that has more in common with yeah. with prog music than it does psychedelic music that's true yeah oh and care of cell 44 that's a pretty offbeat way to start your album singing about uh like how your lover's been in an institution and hopefully she'll feel better soon that, that's a very no wonder like <laughs> elliot smith and of montreal are attracted to that because th- that's very much up their alley like kind of twisted bizarre love story yeah i mean you, you get like that that with the um the, the mixture of those s- s- weighty lyrics with uh this like propulsive rhythm section and so then jaunty this, like, jaunty rhythm section, and then this dainty uh um like harpsichord and 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 the, the keys and and all that stuff like and the the, the choir like harmonies that they have it's just a very weird uh, uh, combination like the the music doesn't have it sh- it shouldn't kick so much ass you know like that like the, the, that care of self forty four is a great example it's like you know it's really like weird novelistic style of of uh, lyric writing uh, and then this. Uh, heavy kick drum, heavy bass production. That that Jeff Emmerich McCartney style of production, where it sounds like yeah. it's almost like right into the board. It's very heavy, uh, and I think it does. We we're talking about prog music, like it, it sort of leans in that uh, direction. There's nothing psychedelic about that opening track. It's it's just like yeah. a funky, funky well, pop song. The Sgt. Pepper's opening track is the same way. Like that's two steps away from hard rock. Yeah, but it's still associated with flower power. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, and then but it gets so delicate right away with the rose for Emily. Mm-hmm. Are there even? There's no drums on that song, right? I kept this. It's the same Emily. thing happened to me with in the airplane. The exact same thing happened where I remembered it. It hasn't been that long since I heard this record because like I can listen to this, you know, uh, infinitely. But uh, I remember there being way more orchestration on a lot of these songs than there actually yeah. is. It's it's uh, very open in in yeah. many places. Yeah, they do that thing where they have. Like the verses are like sort of stripped down and then the arrangements on the choruses will just like explode. So there'll be like keys, piano, or harpsichord or whatever, and then Colin's voice and then big choruses. Yeah. And the, the choruses feel big a lot of the time because of the vocals and the vocal harmonies and how they stack that 
Like that really gets you most of your expansiveness. And yeah, just another key part of this band that I, I wish you had that element. And again, I'm going to come back to Colin Blundstone's solo albums. I feel like it might be missing some of that vocal expansiveness to really just make it a whole universe of sound. But uh, yeah, you, you don't you don't get any sitars on this album or uh, electric violin no. or some, something uh, sharper or more gimmicky maybe. It's not a lot of that. I, I, that that the the one two punch of brief candles and hung up on a dream. Yeah. Like talking about stacking harmony. Oh my goodness! The, the end of hung up on a dream. For anyone who doesn't know that song, like listen through to the ending of that song as they build those as they build those harmonies. It's it's like uh, it's like a choir like. Uh, and it's a very British kind of sound. I think a lot of the other harmonies that you hear from those groups were sort of approximating what was happening in America. They were approximating the Motown groups. They were, um, you know, it, it's just maybe uh, there was Everly Brothers influence. This It sounds like they sound like choir boys here. It's very pastoral. Yeah. And they, I also saw another interview where they mentioned that even really early on in their rehearsals, a core focus of theirs, even if it was seen as kind of uh, lame or contrite at the time, or at least unusual, they focused on vocal harmonies and really honed in on that. And many of them had experience doing music in churches. And that is that is another fundamental part of where they come from, is that, that choir sound. So, but how they can take that and where they bring it to eventually, like what the end product is, is in, entirely its own thing, which just gives it it's it's coolness factor so much more. I remember the, talking about uh, Beachwood Park. Uh, th- for some reason, even though it's it's not my favorite song on the record, it's definitely it's up there. Um, it's a mood. It's a mood. I, I I when I thought about us talking about this record, I just the only thing I think of was the line "We would count the evening stars as the day grew dark in Beachwood Park," and then that like fat drum like that's just that's the piece the snippet of music i associate with this record for whatever mm. reason you hear so much indie music in that song you hear like foxygen uh toro Imoa, <laughs> flaming lips you, you hear the genesis even of like the chill wave it's, genre it's almost aware of how 60s it is like before mm-hmm. that was a thing in people's minds because at the time, it's just it's another year. Like you, you don't have that outside historical perspective. But it's it almost sounds like it has that outside view of like we're gonna celebrate what what you people in the future love about the '60s, like almost prescient in that way. It could fit on the first Tame Impala album. Yeah, you know, like yeah. That, going that back to your your point about that, exactly. I'd say "Brief Candles" might be might be my favorite song on the record. I know oh, that's probably that a little a good odd. One. Yeah, um, maybe my that, least favorite would be. You said your least favorite was Butcher's Butcher's Tale. Butcher's Tale might, yeah. I also is that one where Argent is singing and not Colin. Maybe. Like I, I miss I, Col- I miss Colin on that one. I might Chris yeah, White might himself. Chris White. Yeah, yeah. It's still good, but it's I. I want to get back to that just fluffy, nostalgic, dreamy like hmm. the the summer of love that never happened but it exists in our minds like i want to get back to that place that that feeling that this album taps into the only song that doesn't reach me the way the others do is uh maybe after he's gone Um, i love that song that's one of my favorites i I love the piano on that it's not bad 
obviously yeah no 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 but that's that's one of my that might be like one of my favorite chris white song on here i think i feel like brief candles is like an improved version of maybe after he's gone could see that um the song much longer changes is probably the the song on the record that you would say okay this is clearly psychedelic yes with that experimental arrangement it's constantly throwing you off it's really sparse yeah yeah. uh definitely a really british song uh and and relies on a lot of mellotron what would have happened if they didn't have lennon's mellotron in the studio because they used that thing everywhere to spackle gaps and and there would have been more freaking organ and it wouldn't have been as cool (laughs) More organ. That was their strings because they didn't even have a a budget for other players. Right. Yeah. No, the Mellotron. I feel like this is one of the best. If you want to get an idea of what a well-used Mellotron can do, like the power of the Mellotron, I think this album is one of the best examples ever of like how cool and useful a Mellotron can be. Hmm. Speaking of the power of the Mellotron, um, I think we asked this question the last time we were talking about an album. How has this record maybe influenced your writing or production? Aha. I don't think it has any more than like the freaking Beatles have. Because again, musically in a lot of ways, this is very similar to the the Beatles. So I think I'd, I, if if there's anything specific I can point to, it's maybe the way the piano sounds in a song like maybe after he's gone. I love the 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 tinkly kind of higher register that has, and it's it's I, something about the way that sounds. I feel like I've incorporated that into some Niagara Moon song, but um, I don't think this album has directly inspired me any more than I can say like Magical Mystery Tour has. It's kind of in that same same place for me. But I don't know what, what's what's the case with you. Uh, I would say two things. One is. Uh, not necessarily direct influence, but just Colin's vocals. Mm. Uh, they're just like, they seem like such a career defining achievement, uh, especially on, on time of the season. I think those vocals are so, and we talked about this, like alternately languid and then impassioned and urgent. Yeah. And it, it's he a fantastic, back and forth. it's a performance. Like it sounds like a performance in the truest sense of the word. Like he's acting, uh, uh, naturally, it's it's organic, but it does sound like a performance, and he conveys so much, and he's doing so much more than just competently delivering a melody. Yeah, uh, and I think that did show me something as a kid that there is there's something theatrical about um, singing, even on a pop song. You know, not that you would approach it like a Broadway tune, but that you can bring in elements of of that. Uh, and this is before I got into Bowie and the idea of like you know characters and and music. Uh, but so I would say that uh, maybe influenced just my idea of what should go into a vocal recording. Uh, and then the other thing would just be probably concision in the in the writing. Like the concision is the name of the game on this album. It's 35 minutes long. It doesn't feel that way. Not a wasted pack, note. No, they pack a punch. A lot of these songs are two minutes and it's 12 songs at 35 minutes, which is even crazier. Uh, they, they just they, they don't they don't stretch themselves thin. They say what they need to say and they and they move on. That's where it differs from Prague. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think, yeah, that, that maybe it would influence my writing uh, somewhat and that they 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 don't um, – they make sure that some, something important is, is happening 
uh, every every second. And I can't say that that is exactly what happens in my music, but uh, it's definitely it gave me something to to strive for. Yeah, yeah. Now that you mention, I think the the pacing of an album like this and what should be happening where and what should you expect moment to moment. I I do feel that I I take some notes from that in the the kind of stuff I make because I'm very conscious of moment to moment what like new musical idea can develop to keep your your interest so there there's succinctness i'm i'm very uh tuned into but again you get that with the beatles so um they're in good company uh, absolutely so unless you have any other thoughts you want to get to i'm curious what three words you would use to sum up this album odyssey and oracle oh geez uh I would say serene. I would say blossoming. I would say languid, and mm. and I and I think I say languid in a in a positive like sensual sense where yeah. it's just like, you know, they're just they're stretching out over these tunes. Easy going. They're, yeah, he's 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 unhurried in in his singing, and the songs sound unhurried even when they're propulsive songs. Which is considering the, all the time constraints that we talked about, like. How how did they achieve that? Very very talented bunch of people. Um, I wonder I wonder how many questions they asked Jeff Emmerich about the Beatles, or if they there was no time for that. I'm sure they were super annoying about it. I would be. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm going to go melancholic, nostalgia, and then uh, I don't know. I'm feeling sunset. A lot of this sunset. feels like a, a sunset moment. Beachwood Park. It's it's an album. It's a great album to put on as you're you're walking through a park at sunset. Absolutely, about days gone by. Yeah, these British bands always fool me because I, I I associate them with like just like wide open spaces, like the environment, like pastoral settings. Like I, I do that with Nick Drake all the time. Fairport oh, yeah. Convention. And I, I when I hear the music after a while, I have memories that I can't even trust of listening mm. to the music in those spaces. Uh, and I remember my college experience was not, it wasn't particularly pastoral environment, but I have these memories uh, of that kind of setting, and it might not even be real. <laughs> I like it. All right, that's it. Uh, we're almost at an hour here, so I don't want to take up too much of your time at the end, but... If you're a Moondog, you know, if you're a Niagara Moon fan and uh, you might be interested in our virtual storybook album retrospective, The Quest for the Sound, well, I hope you're hearing this on March 31st because you have until midnight to sign up. Uh, After that, the gate closes and uh, we embark. So uh, if you are interested in that, you go to theniagaramoonexperience.com. Otherwise, like I said, definitely check out Thin Lear's music. Uh, Matt is an amazing songwriter. And uh, beyond that, I just hope you have a good rest of your week. Have a relaxing weekend. And I'll be back next week. Not quite sure what I'm going to be talking about yet, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. Bye-bye.